You're listening to a podcast from Turners Hill Free Church. For more information and resources, visit turnershillfreechurch.org.uk. There's uh, so much that we could comment on from Luke's report of the resurrection. The fact that it was women, disciples who were first to visit Jesus' tomb and first entrusted with the message of the resurrection is notable. I'm not going to preach on that, but it's definitely worth noting. Uh, it's really interesting that their love of Jesus, their devotion to Jesus personally, didn't override their obedience to the law. They waited until the end of the Sabbath, until they visited him to anoint his body. That's interesting. I'm not going to preach on that, but it's definitely worth thinking about. It's worth thinking about how slow the disciples were to understand what had happened. That the women didn't, couldn't remember what Jesus had said. Only after the angels spoke to them did they remember the words of Jesus. I mean, he said it so clearly again and again and again. What would happen to me? He'd be arrested, handed over, uh, and on the third day raised. They didn't understand it. And they, they were so blind to what had happened. When the women came back and gave this solid eyewitness report the tomb was empty, the disciples were like, ah, don't even know what's going on. They thought it was prattle, idle talk. I mean, it's really strong words. And Peter visited the tomb, looked inside, and instead of going, wow, Jesus is alive, thought, oh, I wonder what's going on here. <laughs> it's quite amazing, isn't it, really? So that's worth noting. Um, all these things are worth thinking about. But there's one small, tiny detail that I want to focus on. And that is just two words Luke records for us. In verse 3, when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. You know, Lord Jesus is only used once in all four Gospels. The Lord, or Jesus, or Jesus Christ, or Jesus Nazareth, lots of other places, but together... Lord Jesus is just used once, and that's here in this verse. And Luke is hinting, revealing the culmination of the story in a a way that's kind of grabbing the attention of those who are ready to listen, who are excited for the outcome, who are hanging on the edge of their seats to see what happens. He's telling us in advance, before Jesus appears to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, before he appears to all the gathered disciples, before his ascension, all those things happen. He's, He's given us a spoiler. Lord Jesus. And, and that's the, what I want to focus on today. He's revealing what, it's not an accident, it's not a slip of the tongue by Luke, it's there very, very deliberately. He's revealing what later in the Bible is explained much more fully. <clears throat> that at the resurrection, Jesus Christ is declared with power. Jesus Christ, the descendant of David, is declared with power by the Holy Spirit to be the Son of God. That's what the resurrection is about. He's declared to be the Son of God. The resurrection proves, as Paul says in Philippians 2, that Jesus, having become obedient to death, obedient to Father, even unto death, is not abandoned to the grave, but then is given, in return for his obedience, is given the name which is above every other name. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He's given the name above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the resurrection. And the resurrection then is this vindication of everything that Jesus has said. Everything that he's done in his ministry. 
all the, the claims that he's implied, all the things that he said, all the authority that he's claimed is proven to be true. He did indeed have divine authority to proclaim the kingdom and to perform miracles and to fulfill the law in all these different ways. He has indeed paid the price of sin. The resurrection proves it, that his sacrifice was not a sacrifice to be repeated again and again and again, that wasn't sufficient to pay the price of our sins, but is a sacrifice once for all that is sufficient for all sin, all time. His resurrection is proof that he has super abundantly provided to cover all of our sin, all of our rebellion. His resurrection is the proof, not just that he's the son of God in terms of a title, in terms of his role in God's economy, but it's the proof that he's the son of God in his divinity too, that he is one with the Father. His resurrection is the source of our own hope that we too will be raised with him. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection and where he is gone, those who are united to him by faith through the power of the Holy Spirit will follow. So Paul says in Romans, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. All these things. There's one phrase I want to dwell on, not in this passage, but it flows out of the proclamation that Jesus is Lord. We are ushered into by Jesus' resurrection, a life, a twofold life. A life that proves in two different ways that love is stronger than death. That's the phrase I want that I feel the Lord's put on my heart to bring to you this morning. It's always a puzzle when you come to Easter, Christmas, those things that come around every year, and you you know you think, wow, there's so much to say. But as I prayed, I just really felt the Lord put this phrase on my heart: love is stronger than death. It's interesting because the phrase love is as strong as death, you find that in the Song of Solomon, chapter 8. Love is as strong as, as death. And it's a, whatever is going on in the Song of Solomon, there's so much there. In that phrase, there is a foreshadowing of the crucifixion, that God's love is so strong that he would send his son to enter into death for us, that he would match our sin. But at the resurrection, we see that that's not the end. It's not just that love is as strong as death, but that it is stronger than death. So it says in the same passage in the Song of Solomon, many waters cannot quench love. Many waters cannot quench love. And we see that the love of Christ is like a, a fire that cannot be put out by the, the water of hell, the judgment of sin. It burns on, it overcomes, it completely evaporates and destroys every evil that is sent towards it. And we can even turn it around. We can say that the love of of God expressed in Christ is like an ocean of grace that puts out once and for all the fires of hell for all who believe in him. So love is stronger than death. And there there are two aspects to this truth that love is stronger than death. This life that embodies that, that I want to just bring to you this morning. And the first is this, we see... That by his death, by his uh, death, by his love, that brings Christ to the cross and into death itself. He has liberated us completely from sin. So his love is strong, love is stronger than death. Is this truth that he has liberated us from sin? There's this wonderful quote I'm going to read to you. It's 
It's not ridiculously long, but it's not a sentence either. But it's an ancient sermon. We don't know who the author is, but it's a sermon for Holy Saturday, so it's a kind of day behind. But it's so wonderful because it captures the, this, this idea that love is stronger than death. Let me read it to you. Something strange is happening. There is a great silence on earth today, a great silence and stillness. The whole earth keeps silence because the king is asleep. The earth trembled and is still because God has fallen asleep in the flesh and he has raised up all who have slept ever since the world began. God has died in the flesh and hell trembles with fear. He has gone to search for our first parents as for a lost sheep. Greatly desiring to visit those who live in darkness and in the shadow of death, he has gone to free from sorrow the captives, Adam and Eve. He who is both God and the son of Eve. The Lord approached them, bearing the cross, the weapon that had won him the victory. At the sight of him, Adam, the first man he had created, struck his breast in terror. The Lord took him by the hand and raised him up, saying, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. I am your God, who for your sake have become your son. Out of love for you and for your descendants, I now, by my own authority, command all who are held in bondage to come forth, all who are in darkness to be enlightened, all who are sleeping to rise. I order you, O sleeper, to awake. I did not create you to be held a prisoner in hell. Rise from the dead, for I am the life of the dead. Rise up, work of my hands. You who are created in my image, rise, let us leave this place. For you are in me and I am in you. Together we form only one person and we cannot be separated. Rise, let us leave this place. The enemy led you out of the earthly paradise. I will not restore you to that paradise, but I will enthrone you in heaven. I forbade you the tree that was only a symbol of life, but see, I who am life itself am now one with you. I pointed cherubim to guard you as slaves are guarded, but now I make them worship you as God. The throne formed by cherubim awaits you. Its bearers swift and eager. The bridal chamber is adorned. The banquet is ready. The eternal dwelling places are prepared. The treasure houses of all good things lie open. The kingdom of heaven has been prepared from all eternity. I love that because it shows the completeness of Christ's victory over death. There's this phrase in the Apostles' Creed that is, some people find problematic because of the translation. We, we say in the Apostles' Creed, he descended into hell. But there's a, a completeness about that idea that shows that that brings out really what that sermon is, is trying to say. Jesus, he didn't dip his toes into death. He didn't go into death a little way and turn around and come back again. Jesus invaded death. He conquered death. He kicked open the gates of hell. He broke through the, the back of the tomb. He didn't, the stone didn't need to be rolled away. <clears throat> Excuse me. <coughs>
<clears throat> my excitement is outstripping my ability this morning. Yeah. <clears throat> so the resurrection is this promise. It's this promise that there is nowhere that sin can take you, that the love of God can reach you. There is nowhere that sin can take you that the love of God cannot reach you. You know, the, the tables are turned on sin. Like our experience of this life is that you know, not, there's nowhere in this world where sin hasn't corrupted something. Every intention of our hearts, even our purest offering to God, is corrupted somehow. And yet, Jesus can save every single part of this world and every single part of us. There is nowhere that is safe from his grace. There's nowhere that's safe from his grace. There's no, there's no time in your life that you've spent away from God or doing things that God didn't want you to do that he cannot redeem. There are no days that you spend away from him, no, no years that you spend away from him, no decades that you spend away from him that God cannot restore to you, that he, he cannot save you from. There's no one who is beyond the, the, the saving grace of God. No person you can think of, no matter how bad they are, not even you or me, is beyond the grace of God because of the depth of, of what Jesus has gone into. There's no sin, no matter how grievous or unforgivable, in the, world, in the eyes of men that can't be forgiven or overcome by Christ. And there's no, <clears throat> there's no consequence. There's no prison that's formed by sin that cannot be unlocked by Jesus Christ. You hear that? Nothing anyone has ever done to you can hold you prisoner. Nothing that you have done can hold you prison, can keep you locked up, away from God and away from the freedom that he desires for you. Because Jesus Christ holds the keys to death and to hell. His love is stronger than death. So, have you felt condemned lately? Have you heard that voice lately? That wants to section off a part of your life and say, God can't go there. He can't fix that bit. He can't help you. Or he can't help someone you know. Perhaps you've even looked at the world around you. You hear the news like we heard about Sri Lanka this morning. And you think, God, is there, what can you do in this? You feel the wave of anti-Christian rhetoric that comes our way in our society, the this is the wave of rejection against God's law and the determination we see in the people around us to live contrary to the way God has created the world. Just the complete lack of understanding. Does it ever fill you with hopelessness? You know, the way people mischaracterize and talk about our faith. And you think, God, how can you save these people? How can you save our country? How? Because love is stronger than death. Because Christ has entered hell. Because he has overcome the greatest of enemies. Christ who died. More than that, he was raised to life. Is at the right hand of God. Who will condemn? Who will condemn? No one. Christ who died and is raised is at the right hand of God. So love is stronger than death. He saves us out of sin and death and hell. 
He liberates us from sin. But this second aspect, this, this life that we live under this banner that love is stronger than death, is not just being rescued from something. He opens up a way for us to live a new life. Just like uh, the Israelites stood on the shores of the Red Sea and that wind blew and the sea stood up. Like at columns either side, this way through the sea into a new life, God opens up to us. So Paul writes in Romans 6, he says, So that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. We're invited into a life where it's so important for us to know that love is stronger than death. And that's what the resurrection proves to us. Why do we need to know that? Because this newness of life that God calls us to, that Christ models for us and welcomes us into, involves dying to ourselves. It involves death. Really, painfully, that actually to follow Christ involves a death to ourselves. We have to make a sacrifice that is painful and difficult. And if we're going to do that, we need to have the confidence that the love that Christ calls us to is stronger than the fears we have. I heard recently, uh, I read recently, a Christian author just talking about three stages in the Christian life, which I just think is so helpful, if you can remember them. They're really, really good. He talks about vocation and probation and ablation. Vocation, probation, ablation. Don't say it too quickly. You know, I think it's true that in lots of areas in our life, in small ways, it's true that we go through these periods of vocation, feeling God's call, and then a time of probation, a kind of testing, weighing, purifying, and then the act of sacrifice. And so it's, it's true in lots of little areas of our lives, like, you know, in various things God's called us to, in parenthood or our jobs or just dealing with sin and all those things. But actually it's true of our whole lives as well. Our whole lives follow this pattern of vocation, of calling, of probation, of testing, and of finally of oblation, of pouring out our lives. Because we are, we're meant to model our lives on Christ. That's what Paul says in Philippians 2, isn't it? Let your example be that of Christ Jesus. Who, amongst all these things he did, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. He became obedient even unto death. That's what we're called. To his, he's our example. So there is a sense in which God calls us to make real sacrifices. And sacrifices hurt. We're supposed to bring the best of ourselves to God and lay it down before him. Take things that we would want to do and say, God, I'm not going to do that for your sake. Things that we don't want to do and say, God, I'm going to do that because you asked me to. It involves a letting go. It involves a risk-taking. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. When we do those things, when we make a sacrifice, when we let go and take that risk, we we take that leap of trusting God, even in these difficult things, we empty ourselves of what he's given us. He fills us again. But as we face, as we see that calling on our lives, we have to face up to our own fear. We have this fear that we're born with because of sin that dwells in us. That that thing I offer to God is going to be wasted. That God isn't going to come through for me. That he's going to let me down somehow. That actually, deep down, even in you know mature Christians, there's this, sometimes there's this doubt. What if 
God doesn't come through. Not in one small thing, but even like the whole thing. You look around and people are just getting on with their lives and doing their own thing. As we heard, Kate read for us earlier, you know. If, if Christ isn't risen, then we're to be pitied above all people because we are living sacrifices, but there's no, nothing to come of it. There's nothing to, that's going to just flow out of it. And this fear that inhabits us is a very real part of what it means to be a Christian. This, this, this feeling that what if God will let us down? The writer of Hebrews sums up in Hebrews 2.15. He says he chose, Jesus chose to free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. And here's what I'm saying to you this morning is, as we come on this amazing day when we see, you know, the, just the most incredible truth of our faith proclaimed, the resurrection of Jesus. Actually, most of us will come here to some degree or another, more or less, with this same fear that actually some parts of our lives we are held in slavery by the fear of death. You look around at the world around you and that's how most people live. The default position for most people is, without whether they think about it consciously or not, is I'm going to die one day. I need to cram in as much into this life as possible. Now I was reading just this, this morning actually. This, um, in, the, in the paper, an article, uh, Jeremy Clarkson in the Times. And he was saying he was in this hotel in... Laos or something like that, somewhere in you know East Asia, and he met this uh, American guy, and he started to chat. You know, why are you here? And uh, he said to the author, he said to him, "I, I want to visit a hundred countries before I die. I want to visit a hundred countries before I die." And he said, "Well, wow, that's amazing. So, what are you going to do while you're here?" He says, "Well, I'm going to go to the gym, maybe use the pool, have a nice meal in the hotel, and then we'll be flying off to our next place." <laughs> Just box ticking, wanting to cram in as much as, as we like. And we're all to some extent like that. In as much as we don't think about that life is really about sacrifice. That our, our default position, as not as sons but as slaves, is we've got to get as much out of life as possible. But the righteous life, the Christ-like life, the triune life is the opposite. God, do you know, I know Jesus said, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, but do you know he wants you to be exhausted? <laughs> Not in the sense of, oh, I'm sorry, I can't go on. Not like that. He wants you to be completely spent. He wants your life to be an ablation, a holocaust, completely consumed by love for God. Why? Because in emptying yourself, in pouring out everything you have in love, he will fill you again and again and more and more. That is what it means to be a son. Absolute letting go. So that the Father in his faithfulness and power and eternal glory and love and wonder and splendor and peace and joy can fill us, fill our empty cups to full and beyond to overflow. That is what God wants for us. So we have this big fear that it manifests itself in small ways. And God wants to speak to us through the power of his resurrection this morning. Not just to say you're freed from fear of death, from uh, punishment of your sin, but freed from fear of death that stops you from laying down your life for Jesus. Lots of little things we fear. We fear being generous because we worry that God, God's not going to pay us back. That God isn't faithful somehow. We fear of wasting our time on people. 
Because we fail to, you know, we're worried that actually, what if people aren't made in God's image? What if whatever you do for the least of these you've done unto me is not true? We worry about that, don't we? We, we, have, we, we have this fear of submitting to his law. You know, we, we read in, in scripture the commands that God gives us so clear. And we look at them and we compare them to the, the common sense we've grown up with and the way that the people live around us. And we go, these two things, they don't match. Are you really saying I've got to live differently from everyone around us? Are you really saying that life will come to me if I obey what God says instead of what everyone else seems to want to do? And we have that fear that his law is not good and it doesn't bring life and it's going to rob us. We have a fear of serving others that it might be wasted. We've got a fear of abandoning ourselves to God and his providence. Somehow like you know, we've got to provide for ourselves, manipulate the world around us so that, you know, everything flows towards us rather than from us. We've got a fear of commitment. Jesus Christ is Lord. When you bow the knee to him, all, everything else falls into place. Over all of these fears, and more, all the ones that I can't name, and I bore you with listening, the resurrection of Christ Stands above it all. The empty tomb proclaims it. The risen Jesus claims it. And he declares in the power of his resurrection, do not be afraid. Love is stronger than death. Charles Spurgeon said this about, about the resurrection and what it proclaims. He says, in the resurrection, we do not believe that some natural law has been rudely violated. We believe that the universal law of life has had a visible witness. That's what we see. What is the law? The love of God. Paul writes, God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. We normally use that verse to warn about sin. But that's a promise too. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. If you sow your life, if you sow the life God has given you, you will reap the life of God. That's his promise. So let me just ask you simply this morning, what sacrifice is God asking of you? Is there some small area in your life where you're still holding back, where fear is dominating your decisions about how you relate to God or how you obey him? That fear of being robbed, of being let down somehow. What are you struggling to let go of? Is there some big area, just the area of submission to Jesus Christ at all? Actually, you have to hand over your whole life and stop trying to figure it out for yourself. Stop making up your own laws in addition to God. Stop disobeying the ones that you're really inconvenient. Just give him the whole lot. Is that it? What sacrifice is God asking you to make? Jesus' resurrection is the promise that that sacrifice will not be in vain. Christ has conquered. Hell has been harrowed. Death has been defanged. Let me finish with an appeal. Some of you today are here who, like Peter, have 
come to the tomb of Christ and have left wandering. I'm talking to people who have not made that firm commitment to follow Christ. I just want to invite you to see the absurdity of the position you're in. There are some people here who you believe all the really hard stuff to believe, like that a man was raised from the dead and <laughs> you know there's an empty tomb and you know you, you believe all the facts about the Christian life. We haven't done the easy thing. Hard and easy. You haven't placed your trust in Jesus. You haven't put two and two together like Peter should have done with all the things that Jesus had told him. He shouldn't have gone away wondering. He should have gone, wow, Jesus is alive. This is awesome. He went away wondering what to do. And God would say to you this morning, don't leave this place wondering what to do. Make that decision. Resolve to do something about what you know to be true. You know, if you if you disbelieved, I'd understand. It's hard to believe that God raised someone from the dead. We could have, you know, weeks and months of conversation. I think I'd probably be able to convince you or other people in this room could definitely convince you of the fact of the resurrection. You know, there's so much evidence for it and so on. But I, I get if instinctively you disbelieve it. Disbelief, fine. Unbelief, this is a slightly different thing. Refusing to act on what you know to be true. Refusing to commit. Refusing to give everything to God. That doesn't make sense. What is Jesus asking you to do? He's asking you to put your trust in him. He's asking you to say very simply, I want that love that is stronger than death. He wants you to know the Father's love like he knows the Father's love. Can you imagine a love so strong that you could go to something as terrible as a crucifixion willingly, freely because you're so confident that you're loved that much. That is the love that God wants to pour into your heart through Jesus Christ. That love of the Father that will keep you safe and give you peace and joy in every circumstance. He wants you to know that love more than that. He wants you to be free to love like him. He wants you to be free to to be in control of your life so that you can offer it to God fully. To not be addicted to things, to not be enslaved to things. But to be free to look at God's law and say, you know what, I love what God says. And I want to do what he wants. You know what else he wants for you? He wants to bless people for you. He wants that love that you see and you offer back to him. He wants it to flow out of your life and to bring joy and life to the people around you. He wants it to overflow from you, like a a, a spring welling out of the ground and turning into a river, to bring life to the parched lives of the world around you. And it's just a simple thing. Do you want that? I just don't see that there's anything to not to want. Don't wander anymore. Give all of yourself to him. Make that decision. Come and tell me if you want to do that. I would just love to talk it through and pray it through with you.
but don't leave here wondering. There's nothing to wonder about except the seemingly crazy generosity of God who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. He just wants you to crown him. He's crowned already. But he wants you to crown him in your heart. This is what the last verse of that song we sung a moment ago says. This is what God proclaims and invites you to agree to. Crown him the Lord of heaven, enthroned in worlds above. Crown him the king to whom is given the wondrous name of love. Crown him with many crowns as thrones before him fall. Crown him, ye kings, with many crowns, for he is king of all. Amen.